0: This stinks. I mean it. It really smells. It's putrid. I can't stand it. It's disgusting. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. But first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit, the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. Find out more at Boston Phil. This is, this is really hard. You're doing great, Ken. This is a notoriously difficult piece to conduct, in case you're wondering. So do it again. And I want to see really what it is you're trying. You look as though you're waiting for them to teach you instead of for you to teach them. So be really sure. You have to be so secure at the beginning. What was the first sense? I mean, even if we just start with the mythological five senses, what was the first sense? It was probably a combination of smell and touch that the amoeba floating along, the protozoa, all those weird little creatures, they collide with the outside world. And they need to know what the outside world is telling them. They need to sense danger. They need to figure out what's food and what's not. And so for millions of years, we've been evolving from that simple idea. The turkey vulture really smells Compared to every other bird in the animal kingdom, the turkey vulture has the best developed sense of smell. Its olfactory region in its brain is many times bigger than that of any other birds. A turkey vulture from 150 feet in the air can spot a dead chicken. Take that dead chicken, put a sheet over him, the turkey vulture can still find him from 100 feet away simply by smelling It turns out that in addition to having a nose as we think of having a nose, the turkey vulture, like most creatures, also has Jacobson's organ. Jacobson's organ is a little-known sense, humans have it too, that's a pipeline directly from the outside world to our amygdala, right to the core of our brain. It's where pheromones live. turns out love at first sight is probably exaggerated, but love at first sniff is a real thing. Jacobson's organ, which has been known for over a hundred years, gives us proof that human beings, like turkey vultures, still make tons of their decisions based on things that don't have words associated with them, that aren't based on long trains of logical, rational thought, but instead are built around how do we feel. It turns out we don't have five senses. We have way more than that. The idea of a sixth sense leaves out a whole bunch of things. For example, a headache. Which sense is that? Or the sense that your stomach is empty. Turns out that people can sense when their blood pressure is high or low. We have proprioception, our ability to understand in a dark room the relationship of our limbs to one another. By many counts, there are more than 20 senses that most human beings engage with every day. But if we look at the work of people who seek to engage with our culture, we spend almost all our time on the last sense, the sense that came along at the end, the sense of words. We're copywriters. We're trying to put together a narrative we're looking for proof. At universities, you get graded based on the papers that you hand in. 26 characters in millions of combinations describing to others, proving to others that you are right. And the sense that we are appealing to, the eye has to look at the words, the words have to be decoded, the words have to be understood, the words have to be processed, and then we make a decision. And perhaps in some Star Trekian utopia, that's the way people make decisions. But it turns out, in real life, the more basic a sense is, the harder it is for us to find the words to describe it, the more power that sense has over us. It's not an accident that there are so many obscene words that revolve around things that we can smell. That's because they're at the basic level of human emotion. Consider for a second the Stroop test, which is proof right there in front of you that your brain has a lot of trouble with this last step, the step of figuring out the letters and understanding the concepts. It's pretty simple. What happens is the experimenter puts in front of you a bunch of colors, and you're supposed to say them one circle at a time, yellow, green, blue, red. Unless you have color blindness, this is a really easy test. You can whip right through it. Step number two, instead of a circle in the color, we write out the name of the word in the color. So the yellow is yellow, and the red is red, and the blue is blue. You see the letters B-L-U-E, but you instantly say the word blue. Even if you're not a good reader, this is not a difficult test. But then the experimenter goes one step further. They color the words differently than they spell them. So the word yellow, Y-E-L-L-O-W, is painted in red ink. Blue, B-L-U-E, is painted in yellow ink. Here's what will happen. You will take a long time. It will be very, very difficult for you to do this. Much more difficult than if they had all been written In black and white. That's because two parts of your brain are being triggered. The part of your brain, the primeval part, that understands that colors and survival are linked, and the academic part, the one that's trying to ignore what color the word is written in so that you can do well on a test. This is why conceptual art works, because in so many ways it doesn't work. In 1919, Marcel Duchamp took a postcard of the Mona Lisa, defaced it with a mustache, gave it a name that's a pun in French for she has a fire down below. So there you go. L-H-O-O-Q. You have to know French. You have to know who da Vinci was. You have to understand the reference to the Mona Lisa. You have to think about what the pun means and the mustache. All of that is conceptual. It's nothing that gets to our basic understanding of what it is to be in the jungle or the savanna or the ocean, a ferret wouldn't get the joke. Conceptual art is this smile in the mind, this ability to do a Stroop test on ourselves. Conceptual art, though, while it has a wonderful place in our culture, doesn't often change the culture. That we can have plenty of pictures of Magritte's pipe on the wall, but it doesn't get to our emotions. It doesn't change our behavior. Once you realize that so much of our decision making is based on nonverbal, emotional, and sensory cues, the question is what are you going to do about it? For example, if you wanted to make somebody really stressed, if you wanted them to not particularly act at their best, if you wanted them to be selfish and short sighted and impatient, one thing you could consider doing is setting out your waiting room to look like the waiting room of the toe pound in New York City. Fill it with uncomfortable chairs, harsh lighting, bulletproof glass, and stressed out people. Because even if this was the room where you picked up your lottery winnings, people would be stressed just by walking into the room. Or consider what happens when you're designing a restaurant or trying to come up with a setting where someone's going to decide to trust a financial advisor with their life savings why is it that a chiropractor's office feels different than a doctor's office why is it that a plastic surgeon's office feels different than a medical clinic these are choices that are not solely based on how much does it cost to build the office That in fact, the environmental design that we put people in changes their behavior, and it changes the way they interact with what's being offered to them. It's not an accident that businesses copy the environment that other successful businesses have. That if it reminds us of a place where we got what we wanted, if it reminds us of a place where we felt safe, or challenged, or engaged, then we're likely to feel that way again. The question, what does this remind you of, is at the heart of any kind of culture-bending storytelling, that thing we call marketing. It's also known as semiotics, the science of flags and symbols, a stop sign, A stop sign doesn't have to be that shape and that color, but it is. And it doesn't matter if I write the word go on a red octagonal stop sign. You're still going to stop because it's going to a different part of your brain. The symbol is engaging with us immediately. Now, this is easily misused. Con men. Con men are great at presenting themselves with the semiotics associated with trustworthy people. They dress a certain way, shake hands a certain way, look you in the eye a certain way, all in the service of jamming your senses and getting you to give them the benefit of the doubt. You watch this guy and tell me, does he play with his gold ring? Then I know he's bluffing, I win the big hand, and I forget the 800 your friend owes. On the other hand, the logic goes in the other direction as well, often unintentionally. Remember the Stroop test? John Ridley Stroop, who popularized it in the 1930s? It's one of the most cited papers in its field. More than 700 other studies have cited the Stroop test. Guess what? He didn't invent the Stroop test. Six years earlier, someone had written it up in Germany. And the person who wrote it up in German took it from somebody else, who took it from somebody else. But Stroop gets all the credit. Why is that? It turns out that in our culture, for a really long time, the origin and language and genetic makeup of the person publishing the paper changed the way someone in the field would interpret the paper. Stroop didn't pioneer this work. What Stroop did was he wrote about it in English, from the position of a tenured professor who was a white male. And so the symbol was sent. And we use these symbols, we use these senses long before we get to the detail. Consider the case of Penelope Gazin and Kate Dwyer, who started a marketplace online called Witch These two female founders were looking for developers and eventually investors. And what they found was it was difficult using email to get engagement from people. So they invented a third founder, a man, and they built an email address for him. And they CC'd him on all the emails. What they found was that if they scheduled a conference call with their fake co-founder joining in, it was way more likely that developers and others would join the call. That's a simple little signal. It's a signal that goes to another one of our unknown senses, and it changes the way that people behaved. One more semiotic signal I want to talk about, and that is how we interpret the voice of the person we're hearing from. When a politician is in a debate or giving a speech, how do we interpret their hair, their looks, and most of all, their voice. How do we differentiate between the voice of a man and the voice of a woman? In our culture, what are the semiotics of somebody who, quote, sounds stressed? That our future is at stake. Has a harsh tone. Who isn't using a microphone appropriately? Well, what we do is we instantly jump to the nonverbal conclusion that that person is lying to us, that they can't be trusted, that they're harsh or bitter or bitchy. And as a result, it changes the way we process the words that are following it. Well, I, I would compare him as Alice Longworth used to. As he, he was like a 17th century Jesuit priest, mm-hmm. passionate, uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of, uh, who brooked no opposition and so forth, very intelligent and so forth. What we have the chance to do As citizens, as people in the culture, is catch ourselves, catch ourselves when we're using senses that aren't necessarily going to get us what we are hoping for in the long run. And what we can do as marketers, as people who are trying to change the game, is realize that the game is currently rigged and that we, all of us, are suckers for the right cues coming through the right Jacobson's organ through the right receptors that remind us of a place we once were, where we felt safe and seen and respected. That that reminding, how big are the margins on this piece of paper? How loud is the music in this bar? What does it smell like in this restaurant? That car, when I slam the door, what does it sound like? We're guilty, every one of us, of making bad decisions based on primeval senses, just like a turkey vulture does. But we're not turkey vultures, and each of us has the opportunity to use these signs, these symbols, these flags, these messaging tools to get to people who can hear us, who can hear us for the contribution we actually seek to make. So that we don't get judged ahead of time and not even considered for what we have to offer. Thanks for listening. In a minute, we'll be back to answer your questions from last week's episode. But first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit, the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. Find out more at bostonphil.org. It's absolutely fantastic. I I feel badly about stopping because it's so beautiful what you're doing, we love to, Mm -hmm. everybody in the room is feeling, what a pleasure it is to hear that. It's such a high level of playing and at at your stage to play as beautifully as you do, I mean your reputation has already spread and now, now I know why. Last week's episode was about origin stories, and the questions we got focused on two choices. I want to cover one at a time. The first one came from Morgaine in one of the seminars I run, and it was, do we have to tell everyone our origin story? And the answer is, of course not. It's your story, and you tell it when you need to tell it, when you want to tell it, when telling that story will help you do the work that you seek to do. Too often in our internet world, we believe that vulnerability is essential, that we have to be completely transparent about all things all the time. That's not true. We have to think about what's it for? Who's it for? Will this work in favor of the change I'm trying to make? So your origin story is yours. Use it when you need it. Hi, Seth. Michelle from Australia here. If I don't like where my origin story has taken me, then can I change it? If so, how do I do that? This is Dan in New Orleans. I can choose a bunch of different origin stories from throughout my life. How do I go about choosing an origin story? These are just a few of the questions that came in about the second choice. And the second choice is, how do we choose our origin story? What do we do with our origin story? And the essence of the answer. The reason I made the episode in the first place is this. If your story isn't helping you, find a new one. The thing is, Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider, and that did inform all of his choices going forward. But the narrative about his origin, about not only how he became Spider-Man, but what it meant to be Spider-Man, that is up to him. So if you're telling yourself a story again and again and again, a story about being incomplete or insufficient, a story about unfairness, a story about having a loser's lip, well, you don't have to tell yourself that story. The story is a choice. The point is that for an organization, whether it's Starbucks or Walmart or Nike, a million things happened to make them what they were. It's the stories that we rehearse that become important. So if you're rehearsing a story that isn't helping you get to where you want to go, the giant learning here is to stop rehearsing that story, to start telling a new story, tell that story over and over and over again. I got one other question about my dad wondering if I was angry or bitter about the experience that I had. And I have to confess that never, not once did it even occur to me To be angry or bitter about it. Part of what it means to raise resilient kids is that we need to give them opportunities to create origin stories that serve them. So, from a young age, my mom and my dad, who were amazing parents to grow up with, put me into situations where I could figure out how to succeed and possibly often fail and learn that failure wasn't fatal. And so, no, I wasn't angry at my dad because he trusted me and because I trusted him. And this opportunity we have for the kids we raise, for the employees we hire, for the people we work with, to give them a chance to be on the free range, to figure it out, to make sure that there's enough of a foundation that they're not going to fall all the way down but that, yes, they can explore, they can skin their knee, they can learn one more way to not make something happen. I think that's a huge opportunity, and I'm glad I had it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. People are talking about the marketing seminar. I was completely blown away. It is incredibly comprehensive. Crazy, crazy crazy useful. It's it's easily worth five times what I paid for the course. The content in the class was awesome. What I learned, I actually could apply immediately and get results. I thought it's going to be kind of an automated course, and the big shock is the cohort. I have never felt more supported in any online program I've done. And that actually changed the way we talk about the project. It changed the way we promote it on our website. I use it in other projects. A way to really evaluate it and to apply it that I have never experienced anywhere else. It's so much more than just a marketing seminar. Find out more at themarketingseminar.com.